Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. across the country gathered last month to mark the Transgender Day of Visibility in an effort to build support for transgender rights and call out the hostility toward transgender people seen in a wave of new state laws restricting their rights. In the last three years, 19 states have enacted measures to restrict the participation of transgender students on school sports teams. The Supreme Court acted for the first time on these state restrictions last week, allowing a 12-year-old transgender girl to continue competing on her middle school track team over the dissents of two conservative justices. Joining me is Catherine Frankie, director of Columbia Law School's Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. Tell us about this West Virginia law, which the Attorney General of West Virginia said was a choice to protect fair play and safety for females. Well, in April of 2021, the West Virginia legislature passed a law that limited competition in girls' sports, whether it's in middle school, lower school, even intramural sports, to girls whose reproductive biology and genetics at birth were marked as female on their birth certificate. Boy sports are not similarly limited to individuals whose reproductive biology and genetics at birth were marked as male. So the law only regulates girl sports, whether it's very competitive or intramural sports. And there's a uh, now 12-year-old girl in West Virginia who is trans, identifies as female in every way, and she wants to try out for the cross-country and track team at her school and has been barred from doing so by her local school because of this law. So she filed a lawsuit in federal court claiming that she's being discriminated against on the basis of her sex. Nineteen states have passed laws similar to West Virginia in just the past three years. That's sort of remarkably fast, isn't it? It's important to note that there have been almost 200 bills introduced in state legislatures across the country this year alone that target trans kids and their capacity or ability to compete in sports, but also limit access to gender-affirming care or go after parents who seek to recognize their kids' gender identity, targeting and stigmatizing trans people, but particularly trans kids, is the go-to strategy for the right wing in trying to mobilize their base this year. And so many of us find it so shocking that at a time when kids are being shot with AK-47s and other automatic weapons in school, these state legislatures are seeing more of an emergency around trans kids competing in sports than the other kids, all the kids in their schools being murdered. The fact of the matter is that a half of 1% of the American population identifies as transgender. 
And it's an even smaller number of children who do so who want to compete in sports. There simply is no national emergency or sex equality problem that these legislatures are appealing to in reality. What they're doing instead is mobilizing a form of fear and hatred towards a very small minority of kids. And as a result, I think making them even more vulnerable to mental health issues, bullying from other students and teachers and other parents, um, and making their situations worse rather than better. What I find also surprising is this 12-year-old girl wasn't like a star athlete whose competition threatened others. Her lawyers described her as a girl who simply enjoys running with her friends and consistently finishes at the back of the pack in races. And her coaches and teammates supported her. So why do you think West Virginia fought this all the way to the Supreme Court and is still fighting it? Well, because these cases are underwritten by right-wing evangelical Christian legal advocacy organizations. It's the Alliance Defending Freedom and groups like that. And they have taken up this issue of vilifying trans students, trans kids, and trans girls only, not trans boys, but trans girls, as part of their larger effort to have the federal law embrace a religious view of who God made us to be when we were born. And some people can hold that view, but many other people don't. And the law shouldn't embrace that view and and that perspective on gender identity. So there's a through line between these cases and, of course, restrictions on abortion and homosexuality more generally. There's a longer-term agenda here of a kind of Christian nationalism that's being mobilized through a false sense or a false argument around sex-based equality. You know, June, I competed in sports in uh, elementary and middle school and high school. I was an average athlete. There were other girls on the team. I think I remember Sue Bransfield was an amazing basketball and softball player. There are always kids on sports teams who have physical endowments that make them better at those sports than other kids. And we don't see them as having an unnatural or unfair advantage because their legs are longer and they're runners or they're taller and they're better at basketball, we allow the full range of kids to compete and to isolate only trans kids for some unfair advantage ignores the fact that there are lots of kids with lots of different bodies that compete in sports and we should allow all of them to compete and compete fairly. This decision was on what's called the shadow docket, so there's no opinion of the court that we can look at. So how important is it, and what can we take from it? Well, the fact that the Supreme Court did not take this case, I think, is a good sign. It means that the normal appellate process is taking place. There was a ruling from the district court. It was appealed to the appellate court, and that appellate court is considering the case while it's being fully briefed and argued. And then after that decision, a normal appeal would go to the Supreme Court. And what the advocates sought here was an expedited appeal from that appellate court to the Supreme Court when the appellate court hadn't even reached a decision yet. And we're seeing more and more that the Supreme Court is reaching down and grabbing cases early and issuing decisions on them before they've been fully litigated below because they have a political agenda to rule on things like abortion or trans or sexual orientation-based rights. So the fact that the court didn't take this case this time shouldn't be big news. It's normal law. This is how things normally work. 
But of course, you've got Justices Alito and Thomas who issue a dissent to the court's refusal to take this case, saying they would take it now, expressing out loud the idea that the court should move preemptorily and speed up the process in cases like this. But thankfully, seven other members of the court felt that they didn't need to take the case yet. It's not ready for an appeal to the Supreme Court. How would you characterize the record of the Supreme Court on transgender rights, or haven't there been enough cases to characterize it? Well, I guess I'd answer with which Supreme Court. When we had (laughs) Justice Kennedy on the court, and Justice Ginsburg for that matter, the court began to be quite open to hearing trans discrimination cases as a form of injustice and inequality. And in a case, Bostock, several years ago, the Supreme Court, by a five to four vote, recognized that discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation was a form of sex discrimination. Now, two of those members of the court are now gone and have been replaced with more conservative members. So we'll see where this current court takes that jurisprudence, if they out and out reverse those earlier decision or they modify and narrow it. And that's something we'll have to wait and see. But what Justice Thomas did in the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision, in his concurrence in that case is signal to the advocates please bring on these sexual orientation and gender identity cases because at least I'm prepared to overrule them now that we have a more conservative supermajority on the court. Supporting the position of West Virginia at the Supreme Court were tennis star Martina Navratilova and Olympic gold medal winning swimmers Donna DiVerona, Nancy Hogshead McCarr, and Summer Sanders. Is it surprising that those female athletes would take a position against the transgender girl participating in school sports? Well, simply because they are professional athletes and they have, some of them are lesbians doesn't mean that they necessarily agree about the, the justice of granting trans rights. Unfortunately, there remains a diversity of opinions about the legitimacy of trans people competing in either ultra elite sports like Martina Navratilova's level or intramural sports like what this kid wants to do, this girl wants to do in West Virginia. And it's unfortunate, I think, that Martina Navratilova can't see that the stakes for sex-based equality in this case apply to her ability, Martina's ability, to have been an equally well-paid athlete as a tennis player that there are similar issues around sex-based discrimination that affected her as a competitive athlete and are now affecting these trans kids. And that's the work we still have to do, is to make it clear why there's a sex-based discrimination issue at stake in these cases. And it's just too bad that some of these prominent athletes haven't quite gotten that message yet. So under a rule change proposed by the Biden administration last week, Schools would not be able to categorically ban transgender athletes. Can the Biden administration put that rule forward by itself? Yes. Well, they've been considering this rule change for some time. And what they did is a little bit of a compromise, I would say, in order to meet some of the concerns by the most adamant opponents to having trans girls compete in sports. It's a proposed rule. So according to the rules of of how these rules get implemented, there will be a period of time where people can comment and provide feedback to the Department of Education around the wisdom of this rule, and then they will consider those objections or letters of support 
and issue a final rule that may be different from this one that they have proposed. So we'll see what the final rule looks like. But I think it's an effort by the administration to both respect the rights of trans athletes, but also hear some of the objections from those who are concerned about trans girls competing at the highest levels. Any final thought on all these efforts to restrict transgender girls from participating in school sports? I think it's important to notice that boys' sports or men's sports are not being similarly regulated. I mean, if you look at the top athletes in um, male sports, Michael Phelps, for instance, he was born with enormous physical endowments that made him an incredible, an incredible swimmer. And actually, those endowments kind of test the border between human and dolphin Mm -hmm. in some respects, just as the claim is that some of these trans female athletes are testing the border between male and female. And the fact remains that there's some people who are just built in ways that make them extremely well suited for the sports that they've chosen to compete in. And it's uh, part of why this is a form of sex discrimination. It is only female sports where the best athletes are being challenged for not being real women. But we don't see the best male athletes being challenged for being having an unfair advantage because of their physical endowments. And only targeting female trans athletes who are at the top of their field, or as is the case with this West Virginia girl, is in the back of the pack and being disqualified from even trying out for the team is clearly on its face a form of sex-based discrimination. It's always great to have your insights, Catherine. Thank you so much. That's Professor Catherine Frankie, Director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia Law School. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Since the beginning of the year, at least 32 bills have been filed in states targeting drag performances. With more on the way. 
Tennessee was the first state to pass its bill into law last month banning adult cabaret performances in public or in the presence of children. Memphis drag artist Slade Kyle questions the purpose of the law. And my question to the governor was, can you produce any evidence of a child being harmed or abused at a drag show? He can't cite one. Not a single instance has this ever occurred. So we're, we're, we're battling this amorphous thing that does not exist rather than tackling real issues that face our kids here in Tennessee. A federal judge also questioned the law's purpose. Judge Thomas Parker issued a temporary injunction to stop enforcement of the law writing that the state has failed to make a compelling argument as to why Tennessee needed the new law, adding that the statute is likely vague and overbroad. Joining me is Susan Scafidi, a professor at Fordham Law School. Tennessee's governor compared this to sexualized entertainment in front of children. The state co-sponsor said we're protecting kids and families and parents who want to be able to take their kids to public places. What's the real reason behind this law? Right now there's a moral panic, June, not about the old feminist question of who wears the pants, but who's allowed to wear a dress. And there is so much concern over policing the boundaries of gender in this moment. And I think it's for various reasons. One is because the transgender community has become much more visible and there is fear of that change, even though we have had transgender people with us for all of human history, more than likely. And secondly, because drag entertainment, which is not specific to being transgender, but is a performance of being of the opposite gender has become so very popular. And so there is a concern that somehow children will be converted to some kind of gender queerness and that drag is part of that. And things like having a man in a dress read a story at a school is going to groom children to become confused about their sexual identities. I think anything that promotes literacy is a good idea, no matter who's reading it, but that's the expressed concern. But, you know, I think there's something deeper culturally going on. There is, uh, so there is that widespread expressed concern among certain parents and other individuals. But there's also something coming from uh, the extreme conservative religious right. Because if you go back to the, the book of Deuteronomy, right, Deuteronomy 22.5, there is an actual prohibition against cross-dressing. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garments. And so I think there is among some individuals a deep-seated belief that simply wearing the traditional clothing of the opposite sex or that is affiliated with the opposite sex is somehow evil. And we're seeing that played out here. Let's talk about some of the possible legal challenges. Does this violate the First Amendment rights of drag artists? The bill in Tennessee that you mentioned, which is probably only the first of a series of, if you will, anti-drag bills that we will see because there are a number that are under consideration in other states, has been challenged specifically on First Amendment grounds. The organization that has challenged it is called Friends of Georgia's. They're a community theater group that features drag performances, that features performers from the LGBTQIA plus community. I hope I got all the letters in there. 
Uh, but the plus covers a whole range of gender queerness, of course. But that theater has challenged on the basis of the First Amendment, claiming that the statute, which redefines adult cabaret entertainment and then prohibits adult cabaret entertainment, both in public places and anywhere that children might happen to see it, passing by the windows or what have you, maybe in a private home with a television set on, is completely prohibited and has no exception even for parental guidance or consent. In other words, under this bill, you probably can't take your kids to a G-rated drag brunch. And so Friends of George's has challenged this, saying that it is overbroad and vague under the the First Amendment standards. And because this is content-based regulation of speech, the court has issued a preliminary injunction, meaning that the bill cannot yet be enforced, even though it was supposed to have gone into into effect on April 1st. And the, the court believes that there is at least possibility that this law is indeed vague and overbroad and might not survive a First Amendment challenge. Yeah, the judge also said the state failed to make a compelling argument as to why Tennessee needed the new law. So that will be a challenge, I suppose, as the case goes forward. The LGBTQIA community is concerned about the language of the bill because drag performers are defined as male or female impersonators. And they say that that could impact queer Tennesseans across the board, not just drag performers. That's absolutely true. On Easter, we often rewatch the old Bing Crosby, Judy Garland film Easter Parade, and she sure enough shows up dressed as a man in a vaudeville-type sketch in that movie, right? We've got lots of different kinds of performances that could be prohibited under these terms. And in addition to the First Amendment challenge, I think we could we could actually consider a whole other way of challenging this law, and that is as discrimination on the basis of sex. Because as you've just said, it applies to male or female impersonators. That is to say, uh, men wearing women's clothes, women wearing, wearing men's clothes, or somehow impersonating a woman. My goodness, as an undergrad, our mascot was the Duke Blue Devil. Underneath that giant foam head, some of the Duke Blue Devils who perform at halftime and, and rev up the crowd are women and some are men. But the Duke Blue Devil looks looks male. And so is that a male impersonator? Are we not going to be able to have mascots at halftime who happen to be gendered male with females underneath the costumes or vice versa? So this could indeed be a reach far beyond drag in some ways, depending on how the statute is read. The last time the Supreme Court took up an issue related to this was in Bostock v. Clayton County a few years ago. Tell us about the issues they sidestepped there. June, I'm so glad that you brought up Bostock against Clayton County, Georgia, because as you know, that was actually three combined cases, two cases involving gay men and one involving a transgender woman, Amy Stevens, who had worked for a funeral home for six years. um, And then when she informed them that she was going to continue her work, but to live and work as a woman, they dismissed her. Amy Stevens, of course, didn't live to see the outcome of the case in her favor. But the court specifically 
specifically said that it was not reaching the question of bathrooms, locker rooms, or, this is what's important for us, dress codes. Now, to my mind, I don't see how the court didn't reach the question of dress codes because all Amy Stevens did was change her name and change her outward appearance in terms of what people at the funeral home could have seen, right? I don't know to what extent she engaged in any further transition, but that is all that would have been visible to her employer or anyone else at the funeral home. And so Amy Stevens putting on a dress is something that the court implicitly allowed, even though it says it didn't reach the question of dress code, which is another reason why I think that the Tennessee law and other similar anti-drag laws could indeed be challenged under these cases having to do with discrimination on the basis of sex. Now, that's, of course, Bostock is, of course, a Title VII case, that is to say, an employment case under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Amy Stevens, the transgender woman, was employed and then dismissed by the funeral home. We could think about drag performers who are employed. Can an adult cabaret entertainment establishment, in the words of the Tennessee statute, or could any theater employ a man to do something, but not a woman wearing men's clothes or vice versa, that would seem to be right in the wheelhouse of a Title VII challenge. But even beyond that, we could think of the cases like a Bergefell against Hodges, the same-sex marriage case. The Supreme Court also said prohibition against same-sex marriage would constitute discrimination on the basis of sex. So we have a strong line of cases not sure whether they would be decided all the same way by the current court, but they are established precedent nonetheless, saying that it is not legal to discriminate on the basis of sex. So how is it that we can permit one gender to perform in a particular costume and not allow someone of the opposite gender to perform in that same costume doing that same routine? And that's just assuming we only have two genders. The plaintiffs in this case, Friends of George's, gave the example of a Tennessee Titans cheerleader wearing a crop top and miniskirt and performing at halftime, being allowed to do so, assuming that cheerleader was female, but a man putting on the exact same outfit and doing the exact same routine being prohibited from doing so in any place where he might be seen by minors. Another thing about this bill, and it seems like the bill was poorly drafted, Or maybe it's just difficult to draft a bill like this, but the law calls drag shows harmful to minors. But the legal definition for harmful to minors is narrow in Tennessee. It only covers extreme sexual or violent content. So might that be another challenge? Absolutely. I think that it would be, at the end of the day, very difficult to actually convict someone under this law, or at least that's my hope, if a criminal case were brought uh, before a court that actually read closely, because the harmful to minors language in the Tennessee law actually tracks federal obscenity law very closely. And it's a a tripartite standard, which includes, as you mentioned, some of the description of, of content, but also says, and it's an and, not an or, and the performance or the art being challenged, taken as a whole, lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value for minors. Now, it's hard to argue that any 
dance performance, any musical performance, any drag performance, lacks artistic value, including for minors. And certainly in the current day, it's very hard to argue that it lacks political value, including political value for minors. I don't know if you follow RuPaul's Drag Race at all, June. My daughter does. They did a wonderful sketch that is essentially a protest of laws like this one based off the movie Footloose, only they called it Wigloose. And it was not permission just to dance, but permission to perform in drag. And a, a small town that prohibited, tried to prohibit it until more festive minds prevailed and more open minds prevailed. And, and everyone ends up dancing wildly and happily at the end. You know, So a, a short and happy story. But it, it is very much an indication that I believe in, in the current environment, pretty much any drag show would have artistic and political value, including for minors. Now, which is not to say that every performance, every bit of adult cabaret entertainment is appropriate to children. There are certainly sexualized performances that might not be. I think that this bill might be a stronger bill if it did have some exceptions for parental consent or oversight. And of course, it would need to be written much more carefully so that it didn't just define male or female impersonation as somehow harmful, which is one very clear way of reading this bill. Merely appearing in even proper church lady drag if it belongs to the opposite gender could conceivably be considered harmful under this bill. You could have on everything from a hat to a high neck lace blouse, long sleeves, and a floor length skirt and pumps, and still be considered harmful to minors if you appeared as a performer in this context. And that strikes me as definitely overbroad if what we're really trying to do is protect minors from harm. I mean, I think this says it all. This is the third year in a row that the state house has somehow, you know, peeled back the rights of transgender Tennesseans. The governor also signed a ban on gender-affirming health care for youth in the state. Now, would a judge take that into consideration that this is ongoing and it seems like the target is transgender people, whether or not it has to do with drag or anything else? Very few drag performers are actually transgender individuals, but it does seem that drag as a performance art is being caught up in this moral panic about transgender individuals because drag performers are indeed forming in the the persona of the of the opposite sex. So yes, you definitely are connecting the dots, if you will, in terms of what is happening in Tennessee and in other places. Could a court take that into account? It would be difficult because the court is asked to examine the law on its face and to examine the law as it will be applied. And so a court is not likely to take into account the entire cultural background and a suite of other laws that may or may not be constitutional. But it's Certainly, given that judges are human, as are those appearing before the court, it's certainly in the back of everyone's mind. Uh, there's no question when the representatives, uh, the state senator and representative in particular who introduced this bill have spoken about it publicly, that that is what is in their minds when they talk about the grooming of children and something that is harmful to minors.
They believe that exposure to someone who is pretending to be, even for the purposes of entertainment, a member of the opposite sex, somehow predisposes little minds to be warped. And that's, uh, it's unfortunate in general, but it's certainly tragic for drag performers who could lose their livelihoods, and many of whom um, have had difficult personal histories and depend on being members of the drag community and using that membership in the drag community to create a career and to pursue an art form that is very meaningful to them as individuals. It's not just a matter of choosing between the violin and the trumpet in high school band. This is part of who they are as individuals and what they want to express on the stage, even though they themselves are not personally transgender. It is a way of joyfully exploring themes of gender without actually being an individual who is transgender. Thanks so much for being on the show, Susan. That's Professor Susan Scafidi of Fordham Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.